passage today, we're moving forward in Mark 14. Uh, I have limited it again uh, for your benefit. Um, you heard the phrase to throw in the towel. Throw in the towel. You don't understand what we mean when we say that? It, it literally comes from a, a boxer or a trainer throwing in the towel uh, to call a fight, to say that it's, it's over. My, my prize fighter is being pummeled and walloped and beaten and the fight is over and there's no point in putting him in through any more agony. Well, no, most notably, this happened three years ago at Yankee Stadium when Joe Grier, the trainer for Yuri Foreman, heaved a towel into the ring in, in the early parts of the eighth round when Yuri Foreman twisted his right knee and could, it is clear he couldn't go on any longer. So the, the trainer throws in the towel, and then he enters the ring as well to, to go help his prize fighter out. Now, in any other venue, that would have signified the end of the fight. But at Yankee Stadium, a charged electric stadium with a, with a crowd buzzing and a very strong-willed referee, the unthinkable happened. The referee picked up the towel and threw it back. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. We're going to let the fight go on. That, that doesn't happen. You're going to kill the guy. He made the decision. It's my decision. The fight's going to go on. And I started thinking about that uh, the other day. That idiom, to throw in the towel, does not just sit with boxing. We use that idiom uh, all throughout our relationships uh, or all throughout our life. And so I, I decided to search the Internet. When is it time to throw in the towel in marriages? found some of the worst marital advice you could find. Check it out. When is the time to throw in the towel? One person says, you will know. You will have an aha moment of clarity. Oh, okay. Aha, now's the time. (laughs) What if I always feel that way? What if I always feel that that's that's when that moment is? Another person says, If you find yourself wondering whether or not you've fallen out of love, and just to start that way is bad. (laughs) You know it's bad when you can fall out of love as if you fell into it. You may want to consider the following. Are you still able to recall your past memories with affection or fondness or a sense of what drew you to him or her? You may want to ask, is there a part of me that still feels an ember burning no matter what? Well, embers... And emotions are all fine and well. But these all deal with our emotions, which are very fickle and can fluctuate at any moment. And what we have today, today we're going to look at a prize fight. A prize fight of the will of Jesus. And he has this huge question to wrestle with. And if it's all based on feelings and embers and emotions, then he's going to throw in the towel. He would throw in the towel. And today we see a very unique glimpse into the mental turmoil going on inside our God's head. And so please stand for a prize fight for the reading of God's word. Come on forward, Matthew. Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. 
And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come to you now, we remind of the the beautiful hymn as it rings, that not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. And so, Father, I ask you would reveal to us today that our salvation is completely out of our hands, and it's in yours alone And it's for your joy that it's in your hands. And let's see and find joy and rest in those hands today. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. Last week we got a behind-the-scenes pass into the Lord's Supper, the, the Passover meal that they were celebrating. Remember, it was Thursday night, the night before his crucifixion, uh, the Monday Thursday service, and they're celebrating and eating the Passover. And we heard that the Passover meal that they were, all the Passover meals that they've been celebrating all throughout history have been pointing to the ultimate Passover, to the ultimate Passover in Jesus as the ultimate Lamb of God who smears the blood over the door so that the Lord will pass over your sins, so that he would provide himself as a watershed for the Lord to pass over our sins. And you may remember that that meal can last a few hours, and they had four cups of wine. And the night's getting long, and you think, this might be time to go to bed. This might be time to go to rest. Well, you'd be wrong. It might be time for a friend to drive you home after having that much wine. (laughs) It might be time for someone else to help. But Jesus decides, no, the night's still going. I'm going to have an argument with Peter, and it's a passage that we had right before this passage, an argument with Peter of whether or not he's going to betray him. And we find out that he does betray him three times. And then he says, you know what we need is a midnight prayer meeting. (laughs) Let's see how many of y'all come out to that. (laughs) And so they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. uh, And Gethsemane is for this midnight prayer meeting. The word literally means olive press. And so we know that it's an olive garden. So they're in this garden that they had visited many times before. And it's interesting that Jesus is in the garden here dealing with the issue of whether or not to obey God over a tree. And we remember from Paul, Paul tells us that Jesus is the better Adam, the second Adam. Adam was in a different garden, and he had a decision to make of whether or not he was going to obey God over a tree. One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and one was the tree of death or the cross. So very interesting. So we're here in Gethsemane. Jesus and his disciples come to Gethsemane. He tells the group to sit while he prays, and then he invites the inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, to go a little further. And in a moment of unusual clarity, 
in vulnerability. He tells them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Very sorrowful or deeply distressed means that he's astonished. Jesus, who's been totally unflappable for this whole time, for this, his whole ministry up to this point, suddenly realizes and experiences astonishment and surprise, and he's overcome with horror. And it's all building up to verse 36. And verse 36 is essentially our sermon for today. Because everything is building up to verse 36. Everything is building up and crescendoing at verse 36, and it descends from there. And so verse 36 says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so that is essentially our sermon today. We're going to split it up into two parts. All things are possible. Remove this cup. And the other half, not what I will, but what you will. That's what we're going to look at. And this, this first part is a shocker. The first part of verse 36 is a shocker uh, to many cultures outside of ours. Many cultures outside of ours don't prize and value vulnerability and genuine and, and sincerity in their leaders, even at their own detriment. We want that. We want someone to be real with us, even if it shows a weakness. We want someone to be that real. Eastern cultures point to this verse as saying, this is reason why Jesus can't be God. Jesus can't be God. Look at him. He's, he's embarrassing himself. No, one would, no God would put himself through that and show that much emotion, embarrass himself. No one would do that. No, no God would then have this, this intimate word that he uses here, Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy. So Jesus is in the garden praying, daddy, all things are possible. Remove this cup. You may call your dad, dad. You may call him daddy. Uh, but the, the, the more formal you get, the more formal you get, the, the further away your relationship is with them, right? So if Knox started calling me, Mr. Slim, <laughs> I know something's really wrong, especially if he uses that voice. <laughs> I know something's wrong, but if he says daddy, and I love when he calls me daddy, I know that we're good. I know that there is a connection. There is an intimacy. And so the, the more intimate the name, the, the closer the connection. And when Jesus uses the word Abba, or daddy, it shows intimacy, it shows boldness, it shows simplicity of a prayer. And Jesus is the only rabbi who ever does this. No rabbi presumes this much intimacy with, with God. But Jesus calls him Abba, and then he says, all things are possible. And he says, remove this cup from me. And the cup is this metaphor for the divine wrath of God on human evil. All throughout the Old Testament in the prophets, uh, when, when Israel would turn away from God, and as it says that they would, they would whore after other gods, God said, if you don't return, I will pour out my cup of wrath on you. And so when Jesus says, take this cup of wrath from me, he's saying, if, if there's any possible way for me to avoid this death, take it from me. If there's any other way out, if there's another way out of accomplishing our plan of salvation, let's go that route. Maybe he was hoping for something like with Isaac. Remember when Abraham had the knife 
He had the, the dagger raised and ready to plunge on his son Isaac. And all of a sudden, there's a ram, a substitute caught in the thicket. And that ram was the substitute for killing his own son. And Jesus is asking if there's another way. Maybe he's hoping for another substitute. But all the other substitutes were pointing to Jesus. It, it couldn't happen. All the other substitutes and blood that was all sacrificed throughout the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. He can't get out of it. So what does it mean for Jesus to pray this? And this could be a scary thing. Why does Jesus pray, I don't want to go through this? Well, one thing it means is that it proves the authenticity of the Gospels. It proves that this actually happened. It proves its historicity. It proves that if you're going to make up a religion, if you're going to pull the wool over people's eyes and say, here's the religion, here's how I'll trick people, you would probably not put this passage in Scripture. You wouldn't put God being vulnerable and asking for a way out. Right? This proves that this actually happened. So the fact that it's there proves that we can actually trust this account. The second thing that this means is that Jesus had before him something far worse than just physical torment. He had something in his eyes, something that he was viewing far worse than just physical torment that he was about to endure. He's been predicting his death for a long time now. We've been in Mark for a year or so now. He's been predicting his death for a long time now. And all of a sudden, now he, he, he's afraid. Now, now he's, he's astonished. What's going on? And the scriptures and the history books have story after story of people dying much better than Jesus does. People facing death with much more courage and bravery saying, Death, where is your sting? So what's going on with Jesus? One of John's disciples, a guy named Polycarp, uh, as he was facing death, here's what he said. 86 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And the judge urged him again, swear by the fortune of Caesar, and Polycarp replied, Since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar as you express it, affecting ignorance for my real character, hear me frankly declaring what I am. What I am is a Christian. And if you desire to learn the Christian way, make an appointment with me and I'll, I'll tell you about it. As bold. <laughs> but the judge said, I have wild beasts and I will expose them to you. And Polycarp says, Call for them. The judge says, I will tame you with fire since you, dis you ignore these wild beasts unless you repent. And Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment of eternal punishment is reserved for the ungodly, which you know nothing of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. That's how I want to die. Word for word. <laughs> so why does Jesus not die as well as Polycarp? Luke tells us that not only is his soul greatly distressed, he's so distressed that Luke, the physician who should know these things, tells us that he is sweating great drops of blood in this scene. He has that much anguish and anxiety over this. And so why doesn't he die better? Why is there so much fear in his eyes? Because something far greater than physical death is before him. 
Jesus is standing on the cliff's edge and is peering over what he's about to endure. Looking over that chasm of what he's about to endure, and it's not just death, it's hell and separation from his eternal father. Keller says that all of his life, when Jesus turned to the father, all of his life, when he prayed with his father, what happened visibly and audibly at Jesus' baptism, when God said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased, that happened invisibly and inaudibly every time he prayed. He shared that such an intimate connection of love between him and his father for eternity up until this point. Now, we, we were born into sin. We were born condemned from God. We were born separated from God. But for eternity, Jesus has been in this great connection and presence of his father. And he is now peering over what he has to accomplish and is, has that in his mind when he's asking this question if there's another way out. The whole of redemption is hanging in the balance right now. The cost of it. The cost of making payment. The cost of the holy blast of God's wrath. And he now begins to see what lies ahead of him. It's wrath and chasm and separation from God. What would he do? What would he do? We, we know the story, but what would he do? You may be wondering. What, what, what's his decision? Jonathan Edwards' sermon of Christ's agony, which is on this passage, he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had a near view of the furnace of wrath into which he was cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace to look into it and to stand and view its raging flames, see its glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. What would he do? Would he take the plunge or would he throw in the towel? I mean, think of it. It's the, the horror of it that, that he would have to take on the identity of the most shameful, ugly, monstrous human being of all time. That every fiber of his father's holy being recoils at the very presence of Jesus now. That Jesus is so repulsive to him that he has to pour out wrath on him. And Jesus says, Abba, Daddy, is there another way out? The recoil of the Father's holiness. He has to respond to this with wrath. He has to respond to this sinner with wrath. And so, would he throw in the towel right here or would he take that towel to wipe the sweat off his brow and accomplish his plan of salvation? Then a beautiful word comes in here in the middle of verse 36. Yet. One word, it's a beautiful word because it signifies a change. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. As horrible as the cup is, he knows that he, his immediate desire is, is to be spared. His immediate des- desire must bow before the ultimate desire, which is to spare us. That's his ultimate desire. And it's a dangerous prayer. Not what I will, but what you will. I don't know if you've ever prayed that before. It's a very dangerous prayer to tell someone else that I trust you so completely. I trust your wisdom and your counsel and love you so much to submit my will to yours. Jesus, it's a beautiful picture of submission here with Jesus. 
of submitting to the Father. And the shocker isn't that he was real with us earlier, that he was genuine and vulnerable. The shocker is that he would follow someone, someone's wisdom and counsel so closely, even if it meant his own death. To see that submission, to see that that will to follow someone that closely is a beautiful thing. And the decision to submit to the Father's will, it causes Jesus greater internal suffering than what happens at the cross. The cross is a matter of heart before it's a matter of hand. It's a matter of will before it's an empirical reality. He makes that decision here in Gethsemane. This is why I believe The Passion of the Christ, that movie that came out, what, 10 years ago or so, the Mel Gibson movie, uh, is such a flop to me. It's an emotional movie. You probably watched it with tears. I did. But at the end, you wonder, it doesn't tell me why he died. It tells me that he died. It doesn't tell me why he died. Why does he suffer? Was he wrongfully accused? Yes. Was he charged it wrongfully executed yes but it doesn't tell us why he died it wasn't romans and jews that held him up on the cross it was his own decision that he makes right here in gethsemane that no matter the response of love that he gives no matter the response of the love that is returned he's going to die for us no matter the cost no matter what he makes that decision right here in gethsemane and so the cross is just a tragedy without this passage here without gethsemane Gethsemane tells us that true love isn't based on embers and emotions. True love is is more than embers and emotions and aha moments. True love is is a decision to love despite what's returned. First time I heard that, I was blown away. I was a a junior in high school. I went to an R.C. Sproul conference (laughs) on sovereignty of God, and I heard this, and I thought, this is beautiful. This is what true love is. It's a decision to love despite... Uh, how someone may respond to me. And my, my application to this seminar was to go to my girlfriend at the time and tell her, I love you, and we're going to get married. <laughs> we're a junior in high school. We've been dating for a couple months now. <laughs> <laughs> it happened. <laughs> we did get married. <laughs> That's the application of the sermon. Let's go. <laughs> parents hate me. Uh, (laughs) I told her, I made this decision to love you no matter what. Even if you break up with me, what she did. (laughs) And I said, that's fine. I still love you. Water over. I don't know how that happened. Um, That's not the application of the sermon. (laughs) But one thing that this does tell us is that for those people in our lives whom we do love, there is a deeper love. There is a deeper love for those people, a one-way love that means to love even when not loved back, even when you're not appreciated, even when you're neglected. There's a deeper way to love someone. Not to become this bitter, self-righteous hero, but because like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It was out of joy that he, he did this for us. It's out of joy that I, I, I commit and love this person. And right here in the garden, when Jesus prays, Not my will, but your will. He chooses to love us that way. He chooses this one-way love. And what we mean by one-way love is that it's not dependent on whether or not we love him. In fact, it's in spite of that. It's in spite of us not loving him and us crucifying him. 
There's a story of a missionary named George Patton who was a missionary to the South Pacific. And he's a missionary to this, this island. He had to, he's there for a few years. He had to learn their language. And these men were cannibals. And he had been living peacefully with them for a few years. But finally, there was a, there was a civil war on the island. And during the war, they decide they're done with this missionary. And they come after him with arrows to eat him. And they're charging at him, and he has the most unusual defensive strategy. <laughs> As they're shooting arrows at him, instead of running and hiding behind a rock or swimming for your life off the island, he runs directly at them. He runs directly at them with arrows whizzing by, saying, I love you. You are my friends. I love you. You are my friends. And when he gets so close to them that they can't shoot the arrows, he grabs them and he hugs them with a bear hug and says, I love you, you're my friend. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinning, while we were shooting arrows at him, we actually pierced him, we actually killed him. And he says, I love you, you're my friend. He makes that decision right here in Gethsemane. He tells us that he loves us despite what's going on. And he loves one person in particular here, Peter. Despite Peter, despite Peter, he loves him. In this passage here in verse 37, he calls him Simon because he's not deserving of the name Peter. Very interesting. He calls him Peter because that's upon whom the foundation of the church, this rock, Peter means rock, that the foundation of the church is going to be built. And right here, because he keeps sleeping, he keeps not watching and watching out for him. He calls him Simon. Yet he still goes forward. In verse 41, he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And the fate of the world is hanging in the balance with angels and demons watching in anticipation. What will he do? And his three closest companions are sleeping. Had too much wine, are sleeping. And they're not just sleeping physically, but you see later that they're sleeping spiritually. They, they deny even knowing the man three times. He had this in mind when he made the decision. And so think of a time when, when you're with a loved one and you, you've poured a lot of energy into something. You've given your everything, all your effort, your time, your money. You're emotionally drained, and the people you're serving or hoping to serve uh, or, or the children you're hoping to make happy, complain or squabble or critique or don't even show up to what you're planning. And your gut reaction is, I'm done with this. I'm not going to put myself through that type of torment. I'm not going to do this for you if you don't respond with anything, a form of appreciation. I've got to think that temptation went through Jesus' mind. I'm not going to do this for these people. He had this in mind as he went forward. He knew what was to come. And so I ask you the question, do you feel abandoned by God? Do you ever feel like God has given up on you? He didn't do it there. So why would he now? You may feel abandoned, but he hasn't. In Gethsemane, he shows that he's not abandoning us. He's going forward with you in mind, with all of our sins and faults in mind. If any time to abandon us 
It would have been here. It would have been before he made the plunge to be separated from God and to experience hell. This would have been the decision. No, thank you. I don't think I need to die for this bunch of ragamuffins. That would have been right there. For Peter to betray me, for this council to come to make up lies about me, for these men to crucify me. This would have been the time to abandon us. But he chose to stay. Gethsemane tells us that he chooses to stay because of his one-way love, because of this covenantal love that says, no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. We're going to sing a song called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. No matter what, this love is not going to let us go. I will keep my plan to bring you intact. My plan to bring you into my fold intact. And so I don't know how long you've been running. I don't know how long it's been since you've even had a prayer. Or maybe this is the last chance you're giving God church. Maybe this church. I want you to know that you're, you're not abandoned. He hasn't given up on you. He's given everything for you. And what Gethsemane tells us is that he chose to do that right here. With you and my, for the joy set before him, endured that. He chose with this covenantal, one-way love to love you. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would overwhelm us with your love, that you would you would grip us in such a way that we would feel that bear hug that says, you're my friends, I love you. That we would see how easy it could have been when you were all alone in this garden to give up on us and you didn't. And so, Father, I pray that as times this past week that I feel alone, as we go into this upcoming week that we feel alone, we feel as if you, you don't even want to be with us, that we'll be reminded of what you chose here in Gethsemane, that you do love us, that you've given everything for us. And that love would be so radical, it would affect how we view you, that would be, affect how we view people around us, to love them in such a way. Father, I pray that we could draw upon that, that well first of what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.